We get a lot of questions about where to buy things, what the best part for the job is, where and how to route those harnesses, and numerous other questions from Slip Angle listeners and readers of Tracktune.com. When it comes to safety gear, there are very serious questions answered. If you're like most of our listeners and you have a car you race, track, or autocross, you should check out the best in the safety parts business, OG Racing. OG Racing's friendly staff are incredibly well-versed in the products and the installations of the parts they sell. They can assist you in not only purchasing the safety gear for your car, but also answering questions on installing and using them correctly. Helmets, suits, shoes, nets, and other safety gear aren't all they sell and support. They also carry a huge array of trackside gear and car parts. Everything from scales and fuel cells, gauges and battery chargers, and everything else in between. OG Racing carries all the brands you're looking for great prices on, and with over 25 years in the business, OG Racing is a name you can trust to sell you top quality parts and products at a great price. Check them out on the web at ogracing.com, or call them up at 1-800-934-9112. You should buy the most important parts of your car, the parts that keep you safe, from somewhere you can trust. Trust OG Racing. Again, that's www.ogracing.com or call 1-800-934-9112 and tell them Slip Angle sent you. Welcome, everybody, to Slip Angle Show. I'm Austin Cabot, and tonight I'm at the Lighthouse Cafe here by the Hermosa Beach Pier in Hermosa Beach, California, with none other than Anthony Magnoli. How's it going, Anthony? It's good. Nice to see you. And uh, we always seem to get together in California. Yeah, always like really last minute, too. It's like, oh, you're in town? Oh, okay, cool. Yep. Like, I'll be there in 30 minutes, which yeah. is exactly what happened tonight. <laughs> That's exactly what happened, yeah. yeah I think so, what I had posted that picture of that BMW M2. Um, That's what it was. Yeah, and you're like, oh, I'm going to Fontana this weekend because the photo, or yeah. this week because the photo was from Fontana. Right. Um, you hit me right in the soft spot. Yeah. You put a BMW <laughs> up, and uh, it got me to reach out. So let's start this right. Salute Cheers. Good pair of Moscow here. mules. Yeah, Moscow mules. Good. Good stuff here. And we went to dinner as well, just across the way at uh, Playa Hermosa. Yep. Got some oysters. Good and oysters. Fish here. tacos, fish and chips. Yep. So highly recommended. It's right right on the strand. Yeah. And it's a Monday night here, and this place is hopping. So this is actually where I went on my, not here, but uh, down the, uh, what was it? I forget what it's called, but there's that Irish pub down oh. the way. That's where I went on my date with, um, with James Houghton. Houghton from Canada when he was in town with his wife. So we went there and had some some drinks and stuff. We didn't record a show like this, mm. but uh, James, for those of you that don't know, he's been on the show before, uh, driver of the K-tuned Integra Type R, uh, pretty much one of the fastest Integra Type Rs in the world, definitely in the country. So it comes to all of our Grid Life events, which nice. by the way, we got to get you out to one of our Grid Life events soon. Yeah, we're going to have to work on that. So uh, you guys have been gaining some serious traction. Yeah, it's been it's been pretty crazy. I was telling you about that that little like teaser video that Donut Media put out mm -hmm. uh, that is probably close to three million views now uh, in two days of being out. It's just ridiculous. That's insane. Yeah, and when this show comes <laughs> out in a couple weeks, it'll probably be close to like four or five million. It's just insane. Unbelievable. So yeah, I have to make it out. 
But for those of you that have been listening to the show for a while, uh, you probably recognize Anthony's name. He was on the show probably about a year and a half ago, I believe. Maybe maybe about a year ago. I, I can't remember how long it was, it was from when we recorded it until I put it out. Right. It may have come out in May slash June. So it could be right at about the, the year point that the show came out yeah. now. But yep. Yep. So, yeah, like you said, it was the same thing. I was out here at Fontana, and you weren't living out here at that no, time. No, yeah, I wasn't even married. I didn't right. even know I was getting it married was yet. totally random. I posted something on Facebook, and you're like, hey, man, I'm, like, around the corner. You yeah. want to get together? <laughs> yeah, sounds good. And so uh, that was a good time. And now we're just, like, a couple miles from where you live. Yeah, yeah, we're Amazing. about a mile and a half north um, of where, where I currently reside. We don't live on a sailboat yet, but uh, that's kind of the plan, as we were talking about earlier. Yep. So... Uh, but always good you, to see you. Um, you have had a lot, a lot of great things happening this year. Um, sure. Let's start with the biggest one. Uh, and no, I don't mean you getting engaged, although that is a big one. But <laughs> well, for listeners of the show... It's automotive-related yeah. show, so we'll keep it focused on that, right? Yeah. yeah. So, but uh, you want to yeah. tell the listeners uh, what's been going on for you this yeah. year? Yeah, I kind of alluded to this uh, at the last, uh, the last time we recorded. And um, I really gave no details at all. and just said that, you know, something was in the works. And uh, that turned out to be uh, my first pro ride in Pirelli World Challenge in the touring car class, or in TC class of touring car division in uh, a BMW M235iR, um, campaigned by Rooster Hall Racing, which is owned by Todd Brown, who's BMW club racer for a long time, and uh, the Brown family and empire <laughs> running the team. But uh, it's, been, uh, it's been awesome. Um, we're three races in, we're halfway through the season. And sitting uh, fourth in points in my rookie season with uh, 30 plus cars out at in class at Lime Rock, we couldn't be dreaming to do any better than, than we are right now. So yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, having having seen some of your results and everything, it looks like you've been having a really good season. There's been a few small things that have happened, a few small setbacks that don't seem like they were your fault at all. Well, it started off that way. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> first race, so. This is my welcome to pro racing was at uh, VIR and um, both races I got taken out while running in fifth um, and dropped back to like third, 12th or 13th, um, but just completely taken out when I was you know, entering a corner and some guy blows a braking zone and just you know, nails me uh, in the right front corner. Yeah. <laughs> so we replaced the right front corner suspension and uh, twice that weekend, un unfortunately, but um, but it's fortunately it's gone uphill from there. Uh, I've had good solid finishes and um, getting good points. Uh, had uh, what, sixth and fifths and stuff, and like I said, thirty car fields, and uh, so it's been good results. Yeah, no, yeah. I'm uh, I'm excited to see what the rest of the season has in store for you as well. So yeah. I mean, going from you know kind of club racing stuff to pro racing, what's been the biggest? I guess the biggest eye-opening experience for you in making that transition. That's a a good question, and um, does everything feel pretty similar? It really does. You know, it's it's different in different parts of the grid. Uh, the top part of the grid, say top top five, top ten cars, are not that dissimilar from the top you know ten or five five percent of any hotly contested class. I came from Spec E30, I'll use that as an example. Spec Miata would be similar, a lot of other classes. When you have that many uh, drivers come out to uh, a class that's nearly spec racing, um, the guys at the or girls at the front are gonna be very 
competitive, right? And that's going to go, you know, across across the board for any uh, any series. And it's very much the same here. Um, I've I've found that um, I'm, I'm not going to call it any names here or anything, but I've I've found that the ease of entry that has come from these uh, manufacturer prepared cars like the M235i R or like the Audi TCR. It's it's much easier to just write a check and go racing right. than it is to develop a team, buy a street car, go build that car, then develop that car, and then you know go through the process of getting it um, uh, you know, homologated, if you will, for the series and um, the BOP done and everything, and then be competitive with it. I mean that's that's a multi-year process and hundreds of thousands of dollars to be running at this level. But if you can go buy a, a car for a hundred grand and change, maybe, yeah. and just be more or less ready to go and just you know do some develop some minor development, um, anybody can do that really. And the the M235 IRs are relatively easy to drive at that you know ninety five percent level, um, which enables you know guys who are decently quick to really um, be competitive or at least put pressure on. Um, you know the the really consummate pros, and there are a handful of real consummate pros in the class. Um, so, so you know, I got taken out. Like I said a couple times, it was kind of kind of that situation. Um, maybe it was the first event; people were in a little bit over their head, or just getting too excited is probably what it was. Um, but things have calmed down a little bit. We still had some accidents, uh, but I managed to stay clear of those by kind of staying up towards the front of the field. Right. So. Uh, otherwise, it's it's a lot of the same. But it's but what I find is that at the front of the field, I can trust those guys running right, close, they, mirror to mirror. You know they well. know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. And that that's probably the difference. But that really goes for any class, club racing or not or pro. Yeah. So now with all of those cars like that, where you can essentially buy them from the manufacturer, like ready to go as a you know as a race car, what do you think has driven that? Is it the manufacturer saying, "Hey, we need to provide you know an easy way," or is it is it you know customer customer demand? It's like oh, I wish I could you know have a, an affordable BMW to race, or you know what what have you seen driving it from all manufacturers? Well, I think it's a bit multifaceted, but the biggest driver I think is that the cars now are so complicated that you can't just go buy to stick with BMWs. You can't go buy an M4 and really turn it into a pro race car without knowing how to tune the car, which is all encrypted and everything. You can't right. do that. Or you convert it to full on you know, MoTeC or something. But those engines now, every the engines, the transmissions, the ABS, stability control, I, hopefully that's turned off. But, yeah. you know, that stuff's all integrated now. And you really need the, the manufacturer's knowledge, that internal knowledge, to develop the cars into race cars. And so I think that's a big driver. And if, if the manufacturers want to see their cars raced competitively in professional racing they've needed to provide this now you look at like porsche with their you know their cup cars um they've been doing this for a long time that's probably the best example and as uh, of a customer racing program but um it's been trickling down now to you know more of the entry level pro racing and cars like the 235 ir um the the tcr cars that are coming and uh they're probably a handful more that are coming and a couple that I'm aware of um, are enabling um, well you know, let's use this example GT3 cars you know, you got an FIA international homologated spec um, and that became super popular as soon as PWC 
um, accepted GT3 into uh, the GT class of competition, all of a sudden they went from you know maybe 10 cars and dwindling to a 25 30 car field right like from the end of one season to the beginning of the next it's because all of a sudden all these guys didn't have to go and develop yeah they have another a place to race a car. car that they already have they yeah they could go buy the car go be competitive and um you know right out right out of the box and that proved so um uh so beneficial to pwc that Yo, IMSA looks at it, and now you've got GT3 um, running as GTD in right. IMSA. Um, and now the GT4 spec has been taking off. And everybody's making a GT4 car now, uh, from McLaren to Ford and Chevrolet, uh, you know, in addition to you know, some of the stalwarts that were out there. So um, the 235IR kind of fell into a weird spot. The 235IR is like... Uh, it was a little bit overclassed for the TC class of uh, PWC, but uh, well underclassed for a GTS class. Okay. So what ended up happening was it, it came out in uh, in its you know full trim, as it were, but um, but then detuned for the the TC class. Okay. And uh, it, it's relatively easy to do. Um, the we have a BMW engineer at the track every single weekend supporting the cars or multiple. Um, but there's support every weekend, and um, so, so is, is it detuned by like an ECU tune, or is it yes. detuned with the restrictor? Or it's it's an ECU tune, so okay. it's it's very it's simple with a turbo engine. They can just dial it down, right? And um, and it's really easy. So BMW was able to develop that tune and work it out with PwC, and um, and so they can very easily check as well. And you know, the other thing is it's harder to cheat. It's really a a spec car. And unless you are also a BMW engineer, it's going to be pretty damn hard to crack that ECU and, yeah. and uh, get anything more out of it. Um, what kind I, of power are those making in race trim? Um, I can't er, disclose exactly. Okay. <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, stock, they were like, uh, I want to say three, 330, 340. Okay. Three, maybe 340. And uh, they're down a chunk from that. Okay. Um, Okay. Yeah. I'll leave it at that. No, that's fine. <laughs> so uh, we we are the heaviest car in the class. Wow. Uh, we weigh. Can you, okay, so you, we can we, know what the weight is, though. Yeah, you, it's that's in the rule book. Uh, it we are weighing thirty three seventy five wow. with me in the car at the end of the race. Wow. So we are. That is pretty hefty. Pretty chunky. We're like a uh, thousand pounds heavier than a Miata. Twelve hundred pounds heavier wow. than a. a, a and what size tires are you guys running on those right now? Uh, Two sixty five Pirellis. Okay. Slicks. Okay. The DH compound. Um. It, yeah, I could use more. Sure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but actually, we'd probably take some arrow over a little bit more tire. Um, we got that Audi TCR car. That's a D two TCR front, car. Yeah, because yeah, TCR is a, one of, again an internationally homologated uh, spec uh, developed by the SRO, um, just like GT three and GT four. And um, but that's basically a two liter turbo, front wheel drive, uh, sequential gearbox, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and I think they take away the sequential takeaway abs and they're putting a pedal block in as their way to detune them really for power. so it's like a throttle stop essentially yeah but and yeah the pedal can't go 100 percent. exactly huh. and that was the most effective way to do it uh short of, of doing a, a tune you know okay. as, as was done on the bmw but um i think they had some other factors at play uh, so it's it's great to have um, you know multiple manufacturers and you can actually have manufacturer battles at, at this level of you know what is more or less a more of an entry level of pro racing um, 
you know, granted, not not the most entry level, but uh, you know. So you can still have you know, root for your manufacturer. We've got like 15 M235 IRs out there uh, at, at Lime Rock. We had, it was like 16, I think. Wow. And uh, had like four, four or five of the Audi TCRs. Um, and those just came out this year. So uh, there's going to be more of them coming. But, uh, yeah, we're talking about Aero. They've got a you know, big old splitter out front and like a uh, swan neck uh, um, spoiler in the rear. Yeah, how much do those Audis weigh? Do you know? I want to say 31 and change. Okay. They're a little bit lighter than us, but they're not a lightweight per se. Right. Um, so, yeah, somewhere around there. Okay. Sure. Yeah, I mean, it's, it seems like it's a really exciting time to be getting into kind of pro racing. Um, there's just, it seems like there's a resurgence yeah. going on, which is really, really cool to see. Yeah, yeah and I think part of it is, is due to the factory-developed cars that makes the ease of entry um, very attainable. It's... It's not only like easier, but it's also cheaper. Yeah, you don't I even mean, pay all the money. You to look, the you car. look at like some of the guys that were running in some of the, the higher level GTS classes with NASA, and what they were spending to like campaign some of those cars. You know, they're a good fit for somebody that if they have that sort of budget, they can go pro racing for the same money. So especially now, you know, it makes it makes a lot more sense now with the ease of entry, like we were just talking about. So, yep. I think the the biggest uh, cost difference is going to be in the uh, the toes, because you know, we go. I mean, our schedule was VIR, Canadian Tire Motorsports Park, aka Motorsport, Lime Rock, and then we're on break right now, and then head to Utah Motorsports Campus, then Laguna Circuit of the Americas, oh, and then Laguna, and then Laguna Seca, and that's just for the touring cars. Yeah, the GTS and uh, GT classes um, have an even more intensive schedule. Yeah. So yeah, you're, you're towing cross country multiple times. Um, so that's that's a significant, as probably the most significant you know cost of running if if you don't consider you know the potential of riding off a car. Yeah, yeah. I mean it's um, it's definitely not inexpensive, no. but it is nice to know that the travel cost might be one of the largest costs now. Yeah. You know, in addition to the vehicle. Yeah. But. Yeah. So you know, if, if somebody was looking to get into it. Um, in order to ease that burden, I would highly suggest teaming up with somebody who's hopefully in the same general region of the country or having a car maintained, you know, multiple cars maintained out of the same shop and transported by the same shop and you can right. cut down or distribute that cost uh, uh, between multiple cars. And, um, you know, we're seeing a lot of teams running multiple cars now. You know, Cameron Racing out here, uh, they're based up in Sonoma. Um, and, uh, like, classic BMW down in um, Austin, uh, which are uh, they they campaigned the 235 last year. Toby Grohovic won the championship in one last year. Um, so they were the first ones to run them. And now they're running like five cars. Cameron's running four or five cars. Wow. And uh, most of the teams running 235s are uh, multi-car teams. We're actually a single-car team um, out of uh, Louisa, Virginia, is where uh, Rooster Hall Racing is based. But, uh, yeah, a lot of others are doing either a customer racing program um, or just deferring cost or deferring costs, not deferring, but distributing costs um, by running multiple cars. I mean, it makes so. sense, especially if you're if you're already running the hauler, you know, yeah. on a trip. Really, adding an extra car in there isn't really going to change fuel economy that much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So, and then you can split your crew and, and all that too. Yeah. So. Okay. Yep. Well, any plans for you guys to add any more cars? Maybe, maybe. Um, I. 
I think it would be considered if the right driver came ar- along, but we're not just we're not just going to um, just do it, it to be do a, it. Yeah. a customer racing program yeah. for the sake of doing it. Um, if if it was you know somebody that would uh, be effectively a, a solid teammate to myself, um, that's that's what we'd be cons- that we would consider. But that said, there's not an immediate plan um, to, to add another car. Okay. Any plans to run the car in any other series or do any like WRL or AER stuff or anything <laughs> with it? Because uh, I'm pretty sure that thing would uh, would be fairly competitive. Actually, a 235IR did win an a- the AER race at uh, NJMP just okay. a month or so ago. Um, and uh, actually, the Zamuski family, I've worked with them a little bit, and uh, they brought the car out first uh, second race weekend for the car, and they, and they won with it. And it actually makes for a great endurance racing car. It's very hard to break the car. Um, and I know that uh, there's been one run down with WRL down in uh, the south uh, in Texas area. But that said, uh, running the car in another series puts it at undue risk. Right. And when you're running for uh, season championship points, it's not. it's just something that you need to... Uh, consider not being really worthwhile. Yeah. So we've tossed it around, but uh, the you know we're, we we want to limit the exposure to to damage for the car um, right. when we're when we're running uh, for uh, race weekends. Speaking speaking of undue risk, we were talking over dinner about um, you potentially looking for a different vehicle to be able to pre essentially pre run tracks in because right now you've been using your Spec E thirty. Yeah. Um, yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, we were actually kind of in agreement on what yeah. that perfect car might be, yeah. right? Um, and I, I appreciate the the BMW loyalty, uh, but uh, yeah, E46 M3 would be a good, a really good like you know track car, very capable track car that you could drive to the track. Yeah, and uh, you could drive that sucker cross country, and you know be nice and comfortable sitting in the AC. Yep. You know you could run it at Laguna Seca all weekend or wherever you needed to run. You could drive it out to Miller, get some laughs at Miller, getting ready for the race, yep. and then drive it back home, and you'd be fine. Yeah, that's right. And uh, you know, if the same, if the right one came around, um, I could be in the market. Uh, that might be contingent upon me selling my Spec E30, which is unofficially for sale. You know, if if people ask, yes, it's for, it's for sale. But um, I I did take the car to to more most sport. Basically, it. Last time I ran it competitively was at the NASA East Coast Championship last year at Watkins Glen, and um, I uh, had l- had I was losing a wheel in one of the qualifying races, which had set me back. And uh, so I started the the championship race from 14th, worked my way up to second in the matter of six or seven laps. Nice. And the race ended under a full course caution only like 20 minutes into a 45 minute race which is really really sucky and um had quick lap by six tenths of a second um and i mean i'm not just patting myself on the back i've developed this car over you know yeah you've had it yeah you've had it for a while it's it is competitive the car is not going to hold anybody back um unfortunately i was disqualified from that result uh for a whole about well you can see this um it's like a know, half inch, half inch, three quarters of an inch. Yeah, yeah. In my uh, headlight surround grill, um, that a competitor found that uh, he, d- he doesn't really play by the spirit of Spec E30. This was not a competitive advantage; it's something that was left over from uh, the car's previous life. Um, but hey, that said, you know, it was on me. It sucked to to lose 
you know, the winnings. The track record actually went to him because he had the ne next quickest lap. Ah. Um, and he benefited from being bumped to position and all this. It, not great, but you know what? I, I left there feeling um, feeling good about my result personally, um, knowing that I was the step that I was taking going from last season to this season and um, felt like, you know, I proved what I wanted to prove and, and um, I could I could shake that one off, you know. Yeah. But uh, anyway, to bring the story home, um, the Specky 30 was sitting in its prime and kind of ready to sell for prime money. And uh, and so it kind of like pained me to take it out to go learn most sport. But I needed to go learn most sport before running there because I knew from talking to people how daunting the track was. And if I didn't know how to get get around there, um, that was going to be at a really serious disadvantage. And, uh, you know, when I weighed all my options, the, the best option was really just to tow my own car out there and go run with, uh, I think it was like, uh, I forget the name of the series, but it was a Canadian series, and I ran, ran the previous, or two weekends prior. Okay. And um, it was a really good trainer car, because uh, the car moves around so much that it really responds to uh, any, any... Like if there's a bump from the in road. the track, there's... Yeah. yeah. And, you know, Molesport has those block clenching moments even with the you know the pavement you know the, the road paved out to the uh to the guardrails now in you know two and four or two especially and um yeah i didn't experience it before i can only imagine but i was running on my simulator before i drove there and i was having crashes that were genuinely <laughs> spooking me because i could so see that happening in real life so yeah. easily you know and so I had already gained a healthy respect for the track before going there. And, um, you know, the E30, you got it. The car moves when it's, when it's driven on the limit, it's moving a lot. And, um, so it really, it taught me to respect the track. It taught me where I could and couldn't push, um, or where I had to respond to the inputs from the track with, you know, opening the steering, what have you. And when I went with the 235, um, it actually made it a lot easier to push immediately, um, to that car's limits because the car was actually a lot more stable. It was more yeah. more understeer biased. And um, the car's got a, a, a really mild rear wing on it, but it's really got nothing for front downforce. Um, so, you know, high speed especially, it does. It yeah, has, it just has pushes a, push. a little bit, yeah. Yeah. But uh, it really helped me get up to speed in, in, that, uh, in that car. And it kind of showed um, going to Lime Rock the next race where I didn't have um, a weekend's prep. I uh, just went for the test day, and uh, and that was really it. And my first qualifying, I qualified. Granted, this is a really small track, and you know, hundreds of a second are making the difference here. Um, but uh, I qualified fifteenth, which was like kind of left a scratch in our heads. Like, <laughs> wow, what happened? And um, I think it was it's just those little details that that the familiarity um, uh, really helps to uh, develop. Yeah, um, the speed in those in those small little bits, and uh, I think if I'm not mistaken, I believe that the top it was like the top 15 or 16 cars were only separated by about a second. Wow, which shows that's you how pretty, tight the race yeah, is. Yeah, that's pretty tight. Yeah. So by the end of the weekend, as I as I develop experience through the weekend, like I've I've finished ninth in the first race, 15th and ninth, started ninth in the second race, and finished uh, fifth. In the, in the second race, so you know, basically where basically where I'd finished at at Mosport, yeah, and where I'd been running at at uh, VIR. So, um, yeah, that's kind of feel that's where we feel that we kind of are right now, with you know the 
you know, certain cars having advantages in certain places. Um, but getting that weekend's experience kind of got us to where uh, you know, we thought we should we okay. should be, where, where we thought our current capability was. So, um, yeah, so I'll take the Spec E30 out to Utah here in August and uh, find my way around that track um, before I run in the PwC so race there. Now, along the lines of, like, you know, going to a new track, especially one that you're going to be racing later on in the year professionally, what are some of the things that you try and focus on first when you're learning a new track? So, as I respond to this question, um, I'll just mention that what I what I explain here is basically the same things that I would explain when I'm coaching a racer, even on a track that they know. Mm -hmm. I go through the same procedure when I'm going getting in uh, a different car, going to a new track, um, or whatever, and and I feel the procedure uh, applies to somebody you know training themselves on any given track session. Yeah. So, See, now I feel like we can't like we can't give the whole thing away we're gonna have to like bleep out certain sections like we can give away tip number one number five and like number seven you gotta pay for those yeah others. but you gotta pay for the others <laughs> well, i'll let you do that in post-processing here <laughs> <laughs> so I'll, I'll keep it simple so um having a basic track familiarity right i'll i'll try to train on a on the simulator but you know a simulator for me at least um I, i'm not one of these simulator whiz kids that can you know go race just on having learned on a yeah, simulator. I'm not either. There's not enough feedback there for <laughs> no, me. No, I, I need that that butt sensor, right? Speaking of that, have you ever tried to drive a simulator on mute? Oh, it's, it's horrible. No. For me, it's horrible. Like, no. not being able to hear anything is, is completely ridiculous. But I moved a simulator into the basement just for that. So you can crank it so up? I can, yeah, I can listen to it <laughs> even later Put tonight. a subwoofer under your seat? <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, so so going to a new track, you know, I'll start out. Uh, learning the line, figuring out where the line is, and then I'll start adding speed gradually, um, figuring out where I can get on the gas as early as possible, or how early I can get onto the gas without having to lift before uh, track out. Keep advancing that. Um, so start working on the track outs first, on the track out speed. Um, once I feel like I have good track out speed of the corners, and that may involve um, adjusting my line in the corners until I get the right line that that gives me maximum track out speed. Then I'll start working on uh, corner entry speeds and um, and floating as much speed in as possible to maintain that line that still enables me to maximize my, my exit speed. Work on some trade-offs um, and see where, where it's going to be most beneficial. Could look at some data to kind of help define that. And really the last thing I do is work on my breaking points. And I feel like a lot of people do that first. Yeah, that's like number one for them. Yeah, and that's not to say that I'm not braking at 100%, because I am, but I'll bleed off the braking a little earlier, or bleed off more a little bit sooner before I, or as I'm approaching my turn-in, or extend that blend of uh, brake and, and turn initiation, brake release and turn initiation. Um, and then the last thing I'll do is just deepen that brake zone until I'm just making my turn in. Okay. Um, that's kind of the way that I progress up. And so you essentially, you start from the end of the corner to the beginning of the corner in your process. So yep. track out, corner entry, and then braking is exactly kind of the right. process for you. Exactly right. Which makes sense. I mean, to be able to get to that last part of the corner, you know, you have to know what you need to do to get to that part of the corner. So then you figure out your corner entry speed you can set to make sure that you hit that. And then you figure out your braking points so you can hit that corner entry speed. I mean, it makes sense. It's, it's just 
it's working backwards. Yeah, and it, it's also um, you. Let's see, how do I say this? You can't. You almost can't do it the other way. If you just work on like how late you break, you're never going to build up your maximum yeah. entry speed. Yeah, because you're gonna you're gonna end up blowing the corner, yeah. you know, a lot, and then you can't even drive the right line through the corner or even focus on driving it because you're like, oh no, we're gonna run off the track. Yeah. So yeah. no, that and, makes a lot of sense. And the other thing is that you're it's kind of also working in the order of importance, right? You, everybody everybody's trained from you know driving school level that it's you know slow in, fast out. And as you progress, that progresses into fast in, fast out. Yeah. Right. But or as slow as possible in and also fast out. Yep. But you don't want to be giving up um, exit speed unless it's a compromised turn where you've got another turn immediately after it. But generally, you know, you can you'll give up a little bit of entry to maximize your exit speed. And because you can carry that over a longer distance, you'll yeah. you'll feel that. Especially that, that, you know, that mile or two an hour like exit speed can translate to much larger gains at the end of the straight. Yeah. Yeah, if you're on a, on the street for five seconds, that you know coming out of the corner, you made it to the exit, you know, uh, uh, five hundreds quicker, but that adds up to three tenths by the end of the street. Yeah, something yeah. Like when that. you start talking elapsed time, you yep. know, on how how you actually cut down lap times, you know, that translates to a lot. Yeah. And then add it op- add it up over the course of a race. Yeah. And that translates yeah, I mean, to yeah, more. it could be that could be where your ten second lead comes from. Yes. Depending on how many laps you're running, you know, just from that one thing. Yeah. And then you figure that out in many different corners. And, you know, like one thing that I, I like to always tell people, like you think about a track like Gingerman, right, that has like 11 corners. You know, you want to go a second faster, you can shave a tenth off in every single section or every single corner. Boom. It's 1.1 seconds right there. Yeah. So, like, think in the actual minutia instead of just worrying about your outlight wrap tie. La- Outright lap time. <laughs> Sorry, this yeah. Moscow Mule is kind of strong. <laughs> gotcha. But but yeah, you know, if you if you break it down and you think about cutting a little bit of time here, a little bit of time there, a little bit of time there, yep. that's where all that time comes from. But I think that's why really experienced drivers, you know, they don't look for seconds anymore. They look for tenths because they're just trying to shave just a little bit here, just a little bit there. Yep. Yeah, and it and we get to the point where we're we're looking at compromises. Yep. All right. So we're able i mean a, a pro level driver is able to maximize the usage of the car use 100 percent of the car throughout the entire track right there's none of this coasting going on between brake and, and throttle or vice versa you know um so it comes down to you know do i give up um a little bit here to gain a little bit there and you may not be able to perceive that from the driver's seat but you look at the data and uh and find that that you know one way is better than another. Yeah. I don't know if I I don't know if I uh, talked about this uh, at the last time we we did a, a recording, but um, I'll tell the story. So I was at an NJMP and um, with James Clay um, from Beamer World, Beamer World, yeah, yeah, and the other race, CST cars in uh, Continental Challenge, and um, with a uh, with a client, um, a mutual client, in fact, and it was uh, I mean, cars are relevant, but anyway, he was coaching the client, and I was going to be racing that car in uh, an endurance race. Uh, I think that following the next weekend, he uh, set a lap time uh, sometime during the day. At the end of the day, uh, I jumped in the car just to get a couple laps in it, and I also set a lap time uh, five hundredths of a second different than him. Wow. Yes. Yeah, he was quicker. Um, that, <laughs> but, there was a headwind. There was a headwind. Yeah. Well, when, <laughs> when the moral is that when we looked at the data, the the delta between us cha- uh, was 
changed by up to, uh, I think it was up to a second wow. throughout the lap. You guys using AIM to like to look at data? Or yeah, what that you... one might have been, might have had MoTeC in it. But, okay, because um, those are awesome when you can do the overlay and then you can you can yes. do the actual delta graph separately. Y- yep, the reference where you can lap. see, yeah, where yeah. you can actually the see like to reference. okay, we're half a second ahead here, but then it all goes away here. Yep, those are awesome to look at. Yeah, Jason Kohler and I used to do that all the time when we were both running S two thousands. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Yeah. So, uh, anyway, I you know, saw the part that I was getting killed on. We talked about it. And uh, the next weekend, you know, when we raced, I was like a second and a half quicker. And likewise, if I translated what I was doing to, to James, you know, we, we, uh, you know he, we, he would have been quicker as well. Yeah. And that's where I think, you know, teammates can really help each other. Or let's take that a step down from pro racing and just say, you said you and Jason Kohler, right? Yeah. You're both very experienced drivers, but... Um, you know, okay, there's not a pro title, but you're very experienced drivers, and you can work with each other. Even if you're running the exact same lap time, yeah. you're running it differently. Yeah, And so absolutely. you can look at those details and still learn from each other and help each other progress and get quicker. Yeah, yeah even if you have a buddy that's not quite as fast as you, it's still always nice to compare data because there might be somewhere where he just has a faster, you know, he's taking a certain corner faster because he's doing something just a little bit different. Yep. You know, it doesn't mean that, you know, just because he's slower means he's slower everywhere. Yep. You know, he might be really strong in one section yep. that, you know, you might learn a little bit from. Yep. So that same car, for instance, the uh, the owner was kill me in what, what seems like a silly spot. It was on the upshift, the upshift from uh, fourth to fifth on the front straight. I was just... Uh, I have a lot of mechanical sympathy yeah. uh, and applying too much of it, I guess. <laughs> and I was losing like several tenths there. It was, it was funny to look at once. And then once I saw it, I was like, okay, idiot, you got to take care of this. Yeah. That's an easy one. <laughs> got to be a little bit more deliberate with it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so you might find some silly stuff like that. Yeah. No, I mean, there's, there's a lot of really interesting stuff that can come from sharing data. Yep. You know, and, and a lot of guys, you know, they... They'll buy a data system and use it just as a glorified lap timer. You know, they're only worried about lap times and maybe predictive a little bit. And they never actually dig in and actually analyze the data that they're collecting while they're yeah. running. And it's it's a little harder to do it on your own. Mm-hmm. Um, there are some tools, if you really get into the data, that can help you analyze your performance. But um, in general, it helps to have comparative data. Right. Uh, I'm just saying it's easier to, to compare against a reference lap, like we were saying. Um, but the predictive lap timers are a great way to um, self-analyze or self-critique immediately. Yeah, you go, you know, through that corner and you can look immediately and say, "I am going. You know, I've gained a tenth or I've lost a tenth, or you know, how is my track out speed?" Well, okay, you can look at speed, but you got to memorize a lot of numbers. But yeah. if you start seeing that lap time number, you know, dropping by a tenth and a tenth and a tenth over the course of the straightaway, you got a good run out of that corner. And conversely. If it's going the other way, uh, you know, you, you probably gave something up there. Yeah. So predictive lap timers, you know, even for, um, you know, higher level DE folks. Um, and I would say it's it's not so it's not such a useful thing at, you know, the, the beginner and intermediate no. level. You're, you're focused on other things. But at the advanced level, time trial level, instructor level, et cetera, you know, you should have um, a predictive lap timer in the car. And uh, I mean, the easiest one just to get in there as a name solo yeah. or a name solo DL. If you yeah. got a DL, then you get you can pull data from the car. And from CAN bus or from OBD2, yeah. Yes. Yeah, those are, it's a phenomenal tool. And really, to me, it's a it's a bargain. 
It really is. I mean, $400 and $700, yeah. or at least that's what they used to be. I haven't looked recently, no, but I think that's about right. Yeah. Um, and you can set up the custom display. So I always had mine set up with like the lap time that I just did, my predictive actual lap time, my rolling lap time, and then my plus minus, uh -huh. you know, so that I could actually see that plus minus is what I watched the closest <laughs> to. Yeah. Got me into trouble a couple times because <laughs> you're like, oh, you know, we're down a 10th. I bet we can make it down like two tenths. Yeah, yeah. So that's the only that's the only bad part about data having that instant feedback is you start getting a little like a little anxious and a little cocky. Like, oh, we can go a little bit faster. Yeah. But as long as you're able to keep yourself in check, yeah. you know, it can be a really really valuable tool. Yeah. It can I cost you a lot of money though too because maybe you want to keep chasing that lap time and maybe you end up going off. Yeah. I, uh, maybe I speak from experience on that one. I don't know, but <laughs> hey, we've all got uh, plenty of uh, <laughs> learning points that uh, have gotten us to where we are today, right? <laughs> uh, I could share a couple, but I'll tell you the first year racing, um, man, I see, I see people like uh, go, you know get into racing now, and um, yeah, I, I run the you know, I'm one of uh, a few facilitators of BMW Club Racing Schools, and I had managed to get into racing. Um, without going to a club race school and kind of getting in on uh, other credential, if you will. But I was really kind of, I kind of had that mentality of like advance as quickly as possible. Um, and and uh, rather than, you know, spend the money on the club race school, I was like, well, that could be a club race weekend, a race weekend that I could be spending that money on. And you know, I wish, I wish now that I had taken, you know, gone to that BNW club racing school back then because I had some growing pains uh in in that first year and into that second year um that probably could have been saved by having um listened to a little bit more knowledge and experience from um you know some people who had been doing it for a while right um and so you know now i'm i'm really pleased to be able to give back that way i mean it's it's all volunteer activity um from uh, from all of us and uh and bmw club and um but you know we're we're helping not only BMW club racers but racers um, get or drivers you know get into racing um, by uh, by attending the, the BMW club race schools. Right. Now let's let's talk about BMW club race schools a little bit. I mean, what are the requirements? Because I, I think there's a little bit of misconception out there amongst the general enthusiast population on what's actually needed to go to a BMW club race school. Yeah, yeah, we get a lot of that. Um, in fact. And I'll, I'll give you the general criteria and, and say that there are exceptions and caveats to it. But um, generally, it should be an advanced level student um, who has experience at advanced level, not just, you know, I just made it, but right. like several events <laughs> right. running solo at the advanced level um, cleanly or like instructor level um, or up and up from there. Right. And then uh, with a track worthy car. That does not have to be a full-blown race car. Okay. Um, that that can be, you know, a, a DE car. Um, you know, we don't prefer totally stock cars um, because we don't want the car holding you back from being able to... To complete. Know, just from... Yeah. yeah from completing it. Yeah. And, and to be able like to all push season it. tires and no, brakes, yeah. like, <laughs> like yeah, so, standard so brakes. No. Right. But, uh, you know, a track-worthy car. Something right. that you would drive in an instructor group would be great. Um, and uh, that's really what you need. And, and a couple of references. Um, so those references should be instructors, fellow advanced drivers, racers, that kind of thing. And uh, we do personally follow up on them. You know, if I'm running a school, I will personally follow up with those references and uh, make sure that the 
the driver who signed up knows what they're signing up for. They're capable of running in that environment um, and uh, being pushed to that level um, that they're going to be pushed to. And um, and that uh, basically they, it's kind of also a check to say you know, to find out they are who they say they are. Right. Yeah, we don't know, always necessarily personally know these these people. But um, with that said, you know, we've had some people sign up kind of by mistake or like, oh, yeah, you know, this wasn't exactly what I thought it was. Yeah. But um, <laughs> we, we tend to weed that out and uh, have a, a really good success rate. So the, um, the schools themselves are uh, run primarily BMW Club Race or BMW Club Weekends, but we're starting to branch out a little bit. We ran one at um, a, an AER weekend. It was a Thursday, Friday, leading into an American Endurance Racing weekend at uh, Road Atlanta earlier this year. I ran that one. And we had one um, out here uh, that was run with NASA. Uh, I want to say Button Willow. Um, okay. I could be mistaken. Um, but uh, that, was, that was actually a really successful big school. And uh, that's helped bolster the numbers to you know, make, make us enab- or enable us to run a sizable school. Um, and reach out to you know, beyond just the people who are coming to BMW club racing to those who want to go to club racing in general, right? Or or endurance racing, you know, in, in you know these American endurance racing series, uh, your your chump car WRL or whatever, um, or even you know I, I don't want to take away anything from the other schools that are out there, but you know Porsche Club, NASA, uh, SCCA, um, we get a lot of people coming to to our school either in addition to those other schools or you know, in substitution for. Right. Um, but uh, generally, if you if uh, somebody graduates our school, they'll graduate with, um, you know, either a completion or they can graduate with, like, a recommendation for application to a racing license. Right. And, and uh, it's one of the most widely accepted schools, too, isn't it? Yeah, and I think that's because it's one of the most stringent um, schools out there and also the most involved schools. Uh, it is an extremely busy weekend. You don't want to come with a finicky car. You come with a car that is ready to go yeah. off the trailer what's, and doesn't need work. What's the curriculum consist of? Like, can you give us an overview? Yeah. So generally, it'll it depends on the uh, the particular format of that weekend. But generally, uh, three to four track sessions per day. Okay. And uh, usually about four classroom sessions per day as well. And so we'll have a before and after for each track session, um, and it'll cover um, you know all the. All the ins and outs that you never even think of when you go club racing, all the things you don't know or don't even know to think of, as well as you know how to um, handle yourself in a club racing environment. What we do not teach is how to go fast. That's that's not part of this curriculum. Right. That's what you teach. That's what you learn through. That's what D stuff is for. Or, or, yeah, yeah, or yeah, just seat time. Seat time. Yeah. All the things we talked about. You know, data uh, comparison, driver coaching, yeah. etc. That's what this is for. This is um, how to handle yourself in track, you know, with with your fellow right. competitors, um, and uh, and it's really like a rules to the road, so that you don't get yourself in trouble right. early on. And well, I think what what I really like about it, and you know, especially hearing you talk about it too, is that you know most of the time people there are experienced drivers. You know, you have to be of a certain level. To be able to participate, whereas some of the other, you know, comp schools that go on, if you write the check, you can go ahead and come on out. Like it, you could have never been on a track before and walk away from the weekend eligible for a comp license. You know, and yeah. I, I always encourage everybody that wants to go racing to start in DEs and get seat time and at least be able to be somewhat fast 
um, before you even start looking at that, or else you, you're not going to have a lot of fun, in my opinion. Yeah. You know, I'm a super competitive guy, though. I'm not going to want to go out and, you know, get a comp license and go and compete and be a backmarker. Yeah. But that's just me. Yeah. Well, and, and I was kind of giving the, the example of myself in my first year. You know, I kind of pushed a little bit too quickly and got out there um, without needing or without the club race school. Unfortunately, I didn't, you know, put anybody else at risk, but I did pay some the price myself for some errors that could have been avoided by you know having a better better knowledge and and or having some knowledge imparted on me by you know those who are, who are uh, more experienced and at the bnw club race schools you know the instructors that that we have there are not only the, the facilitators who are running the school but also the the guest instructors um come from um a wide variety of experience in general um you'll have um, somebody at my level or above who who's you know pro racing um, uh, or has a lot of pro racing experience in a lot of cases um, and then we'll, we'll also have a mix of you know experienced club racers then we also like to have um, you know one or a few new racers as instructors because we kind of forget what we didn't know when we first started right you know and it helps to have um, to have that perspective of, you know, okay, I just started, you know, last year, two years ago, and here are the things that, you know, I, I missed. And let me, you know, kind of bring that up, and um, maybe you won't make those same mistakes. I think that's how you build a good program, too. You know, you have people from all different experience levels that are there helping out, providing insight from different vantage points, yep. you know? Yeah. So that's, that's really good to hear, actually. Yeah. And uh, the curriculum itself, um, the... The classroom program is uh, is really good. We've got uh, really good presentation flow that um, that's been developed over the years, and um, and then the track kind of the, the track sessions kind of follow that, and you progress up from you know basically what you would do at in an advanced DE level to then um, different passing exercises <clears throat> to culminating at the end of the weekend with a simulated racing exercise. And I'm making air quotes. Um, that from the outside, that would look like a race, right? Um, but uh, you know, of course, everybody's being respectful of the fact that that you've got cars that are not fully race right. prepped out there. I mean, really, it's, um, you know, the passes would be really no different than an open passing HPDE group. And that's what we try to uh, you know explain. It's one of the things that we try to explain in the club race school is is you know passing is not just dive bombs yeah in fact dive bomb is a word that is not allowed in <laughs> you know in the club racing school you know you can execute a pass effectively under braking on corner entry but a dive bomb is not the way to do it right um we you know we talk about um you know, presenting yourself and how to communicate with your car because you know you don't have point buys anymore but and nor, nor would you, you know, typically point by somebody in your class but you can still use hand signals to out of class cars um and just communicating with the car and being predictable, those are the, I would say those are like two of the biggest things that come out of the club racing school. And it's not just the concept, it's how to apply it. And it's a, it is, it still baffles me. Like every, not baffles, it impresses me. <coughs> every school, every school we do, the progress that I see from like midpoint in the first day where all of us instructors are looking at each other like, oh, <laughs> man, this is going to be rough. Like, uh, you know, who do we have to watch out for and all that? Yeah. 
But in the, in the weekends, like the people that we whose names were kind of like on our watch list at the beginning of the weekend are like, we're not even seeing them anymore because they're doing a great job. Yeah. And you know, there are people that are talking about you know uh, openly to us. They're like, man, I don't know. I'm feeling a little uncomfortable here. And at the end of the weekend, they're like confidently executing passes and, and enabling passes to yeah. be made on them, uh, running you know, close and tight. I, I think it all has to do with kind of how each individual driver approaches it and the mentality that they're in. You know, if they if they come into it, I see it a lot in the beginner groups for the you know the different organizations that I work with, and the beginners will come into the day, and you can look at some of them and be like, oh, that guy is going to be an issue. But, you know, somebody that's asking a lot of questions and things like that, you know, you are you're amazed even just within a day at their progress from like their first session on track, you know, to that last session on track for the day, you know, and you talk to them afterwards and they feel like really comfortable and like if they were all nervous at the beginning, but it is important for them to have kind of the right state of mind and the right frame of mind coming into the weekend, you know, not like, a oh, I know everything. You know, because those are the guys that you have to watch out for. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, you know, the ones that come into it with the right mentality that, you know, are there to learn, want to learn, um, those are the ones that you're always like, man, like, I didn't think we'd get there, but you sure did. Yeah. That's one of the most, no, that is the most rewarding thing to me about all the instructing I've done over the years and the coaching that I've done over the past several years is seeing that progress. Um, from from somebody and that confidence build and their capability build yeah. um, or even like their safety margin build it could be something like that you know you know there's some people that sometimes you have to slow them down to speed them up yeah you know and and that's one of the things I'll look for is inconsistency and in club racing terms like we we'd call it maybe unpredictability um, but if you see either of those that's where you need to kind of step back ground yourself get consistent and then start you know working up gradually from there right so but it's it's a great program and um that's kind of uh i kind of treat as my give back to uh you know to those who have helped me progress over the years how far in advance do you usually plan those schools you know if somebody was interested in in attending one you know this year or next year uh where would they go to look and how far how far out could they look so we generally have at least the early the first half of the schools on the calendar you know december ish okay um so bmwccclubracing.org um they're also on motorsportsreg.com um and so they can they can find the schools there um and i would this is something they should plan out ahead of time uh if if you're kind of progressing through this year and you want to hit like a school at the end of the year to then start your season next year um, that's one option. A lot of people will kind of are kind of you know building their car or whatever over the winter. Um, I'm not going to say you want to come with a freshly built car, but uh, but you know some people kind of hit the early schools in the in the spring. So we kind of tend right. to front load um, the schedule a bit, and and we're trying to hit you know as many regions as we can. But we're uh, you know we kind of found the same thing as I was just talking about a little inconsistent in the turnouts, and we kind of had to step back a little bit ground ourselves and make sure we were running sizable schools that we could reliably um, you know, put on and get a, get a good turnout at. And so we, we kind of like turn back a little bit and, and it's like almost immediately turning back up because now we're having successful schools yeah. immediately and it's driving the, See, the, like, uh, the request for more. Yeah. I, I mean, for me, 
you know, especially in the Midwest, I would probably want to do a school at the end of the season. It's kind of like my culmination at the end of the season that I had worked up to. Like, all my skills are fresh. I don't know necessarily if I'd want to start off the season at the beginning of the season getting thrown into that environment when I'm still, like, a little rusty from the winter, yeah, you know? Yeah. I mean, I'd say in that situation, yeah, you would be better off at least going doing a shakedown weekend. Yeah. Uh, you'd, you'd enter more confident. And, and you know, it, driving at the limit is one of those things where if you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. I mean, not that you're going to completely lose it, but, like, to, to really be like at that limit like you need to do it consistently yeah i mean um, back in 2012 you know a lot of the listeners know i was at the track like all the time and to me that's when i was in my peak like 2012 and 2013 but since then like i haven't spent a whole lot of time you know behind the wheel um you know i'll, I'll get in a car occasionally but i have way less seat time per year now than i used to and while I'm still fast, I'm definitely, I can tell I'm not at the level that I used to be. Yeah. It's just you know? maintaining that edge. Yeah. It take, it'll take you, it might take you the weekend yeah. to get right back up to that And edge. I, I kind of like to compare it to like skiing. Yeah. You know, like if you, if you ski once a year, you know, when you go back to skiing that next year again, like if you do it once a year at Christmas, that next Christmas, you're going to be rusty again, really yeah. rusty, almost to where you were before. Same thing if you only do it once a year. But if you do it over time, you build up a certain skill level. And then even if you take a couple years off, you know, you come back and you're still at 85, 90% of where you were, maybe even 95%. Yeah. And it, it just takes just a little bit to get back back to where you were. Yep, absolutely agreed. And I can relate to the uh, to the skiing from a snowboarding perspective. Yeah. I did it, did it once for a long weekend and then did it again like three years later. Yeah, and two it felt like, like, like the same exact weekend, right? I, All it, the frustrations, everything. I sucked just as bad as when I started. Yeah, we've never done it before. So... Well, cool. Well, uh, I think we're into this one to, for about 55 minutes or so. So I think that is a show, sir. If, uh, you know, if people want to follow your racing exploits for the rest of the season, where can they uh, where can they find you at? I think Facebook would probably be the, the best place. Um, and any of the outlets that are, uh, you know, running coverage on Pirelli World Challenge, which is you're showing on CBS Sports Network. Uh, it's it's streamed live. It's on Motor, uh, Motor Trend On Demand. But um, my personal uh, racing Facebook page is dr under Drive Faster Now, which is also kind of my coaching business. Um, Rooster Hall Racing uh, as, a, as a Facebook page as well, um, or myself personally. And, uh, yeah, that would be the best, uh, best way to get a, you know, follow along. Awesome. So from here, I'll uh, head to Fontana for three days of running cop cars around the track. And, yeah, uh, work work is actually rough, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. This, this is kind of the better days of, of work work. Um, but it's it's warm out here. Fortunately, See, not the 100 They, they need to yet. send you guys out here in December for testing, not yeah. in the middle of summer. Yeah, I end up in Arizona for most of yeah. the winter. Yeah, like I said, I was out at Fontana this weekend for our Speed Ventures event. It was 111 degrees on Saturday. <sighs> it was hot. Yeah. We actually we measured the pavement, um, you know, just with a little infrared barometer. 145 degrees. Oy. Yeah, it was yeah. it was a warm one. So I wish you the best of luck this weekend yeah. uh, or this, this week, week uh, yeah. out there <laughs> with yeah. the heat. It'll be a mere uh, ninety five degrees. Yeah. So <laughs> and uh, I'm I'm gonna try and make it up to the PWC race up at Laguna Seca. Awesome. Uh, I also have an event that I need to work that weekend, but I might be able to skip out of that early. Um, maybe I can. I might be able to make Miller too. Okay. I think Miller would be cool. Yeah. Absolutely. So that should be a nice time of the year out there as well. So yeah. So, so pulling pulling up the schedule. 
Yeah, well, let's uh, let everyone know what the remainder of the schedule. This is you know the touring car schedule at least, which comprises the TCB class, TCA class, and then and our TC, class which is yep. TC. Um, and then you, you generally GTS and GT in Sprint Tech are running the same weekend. But uh, so Utah Motorsports Campus is coming up August 11th, 12th, and 13th. Uh, then Circuit of the Americas is uh, September 1st, 2nd, and 3rd. That's Labor Day weekend. And then the season finale will be at uh, Laguna Seca on October 13th, 14th, and 15th. So those are the calendar days to mark. Awesome. Yep. Well, we wish you the best of luck the rest of the season. Yeah. Hopefully, uh, maybe we'll catch up with you on the off season, maybe at PRI or something like that, if you're going to be there. Yeah. See what we can do. And thanks for the spontaneous meeting. This is yeah, awesome. Of course, man. Anytime. All right, man. So thanks, Anthony. All right. Thanks for the listeners, too.